Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. We hope you're staying safe and are well wherever you are. We look forward to seeing you in person again at the Commonwealth Club when it is safe to do so. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is just the latest in more than 400 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past events at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm especially pleased you can join us for our annual Week to Week birthday edition. Quick news quiz, how old are we? Yes, we're nine. Uh, Nine years ago, we launched this series as a bit of an experiment. Could we present a panel of journalists, academics, and uh, analysts discussing politics with intelligence, civility, and good humor? Well, here we are with no end in sight, and we're grateful for all of you who watch and listen to our program, who show up for our social hours, who submit comments and questions, and of course, I'm grateful for all of the panelists who have really done the real work on this program for nearly a decade. And me? I'm John Zipperer, your host for Week to Week and the club's vice president of media and editorial. On today's program, we are going to discuss President Biden's first month in office, as well as the aftermath of the previous president's impeachment and Senate trial, internal divisions in both major political parties, the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, and the politics of schools. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat function to post some questions, and I'll try to work some of them into our conversation here today. Now let's meet our panelists. Uh, Bob Butler is a reporter for KCBS Radio. He's also the broadcast vice president for SAG-AFTRA. You can find him on Twitter at BobButler7. Good to see you again, Bob. Bob Butler 7 by the way, means that there were six other Bob Butlers before they perfected the model, right? You know, I, I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the uh, best version yet, I think. <laughs> I agree. Well, we also have Carla Marinucci. She's the senior writer for the Political California Playbook, and she's on Twitter at C. Marinucci. Hello again, Carla. Hey, good to be with you, John. Thanks. And C.W. Nevius. He's a columnist for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. He's also the author of the C.W. Newsletter, and he's on Twitter at C.W. Nevius. Welcome, Chuck. Thanks. Good to be here. So let's get on to our program, and let's start with the first month of our president. Now, the last time we met, it was January 5th. It was different panelists, of course. But our main topic to discuss then was President Trump's phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State trying to change the election results in that state. Little did we know that following would come from, following that would come an attack on the U.S. Capitol, the second impeachment, and the launch of a vicious internal GOP battle. Now, I'm not joking here. For Four years each time, the day before the program, I send this panelist a list of topics to discuss. And I would always add, and we'll, and whatever else ha- crazy thing happens in the next 24 hours. And it was not unusual that two, three hours before our program, Donald Trump would rage tweet that, you know, his best friend from the day before or express a desire to buy Greenland or whatever. Compare that to the first month of Joe Biden as president. So let me start with you, Bob, and with a general question. How do you think Joe Biden is doing so far? Has it really been 30 days? I mean, it's, it's hard to believe. Uh, he seemed to have accomplished an awful lot or tried to accomplish an awful lot um, as soon as he took office. And I was listening today and he talked about how when he took office, there weren't enough, uh, there wasn't enough vaccine. And so now he's saying that by what, by summer, they ought to have enough vaccine to, to vaccinate everybody. And I think everything he is doing uh, has to be looked through that lens, because until we get the pandemic under control, as we've said before, we're really in a, in a, in a bad way for the country. Um, you know, I love his, his attempt at bipartisanship, but I believe he has, he has learned a lesson from his, uh, his former president, Obama, who wanted bipartisanship and offered olive branches and kept getting his hand bitten. I mean, I just think in terms of the Affordable Care Act, where they put something like 200 amendments in the act, and from Republicans, and in the end, not one of them voted for it. So I think Biden's doing okay. Um, I think the lies are starting to come out. It's been a pretty short honeymoon for him. Carla, what's your impression of him so far? I mean, I think, boy, has the temperature come down in terms of the discussion? As you mentioned, I mean, every day as media people, we were looking to see what was he tweeting in the morning? How is that going to shape the day? That is 
now we have a president who does not govern by tweet. And that is, I think, the biggest single most dramatic factor here. Um, the volume has changed. The tone has changed. Even when you look at how the media uh, is dealt with in the Biden administration, uh, Jen Psaki, who's the press secretary, is there giving sort of just uh, response, <laughs> responsive, sort of respectful answers to the media. They are no longer the enemy of the people. That, from from a from a reporter's point of view, is a is a real difference. Um, but I also think. As Bob mentioned, there have been some big issues that have been dealt with immediately. I mean, Governor Gavin Newsom today talked about how California has done 7 million vaccinations. That's more than any other state and more than seven other nations, in part because the Biden administration has delivered in the first 30 days millions of those vaccinations to Californians in, where they're being given out of places like Moscone Center, Oakland Coliseum and other places in mass vaccination centers, that is that is a very huge thing. And I, I think that's important. But we're also seeing, as, as Bob mentioned, uh, progressives and, and on the other side, some of the more conservative groups are sort of now beginning to sort of take their stance against Biden. Uh, I think we're, we've seen today maybe perhaps his uh, his cabinet uh, nominee for Office of Management and Budget, Neera Tandon, who was the uh, head of the American Center, Center for American Progress, is probably going to be rejected because Manchin, Joan Manchin, is going to vote against her. And people are watching Javier Becerra. They can't afford to lose one vote on that uh, because there are some conservatives and possibly Joan Manchin who might vote against him. So uh, on that issue, uh, he's, he's getting it from the right. And on the left, issues like student loans, where uh, progressives are really pushing him to forgive those student loans up to $50,000. And he has said, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so it's going to be it's interesting to watch the dialogue. He has sat down with Republican senators up there on at the White House and with the Democrats. It's a much different dialogue than, than we've seen with Donald Trump. And I think that is just the biggest uh, uh, the biggest difference from uh, about 60 days ago. Chuck, what's your take on his first 30 days? Well, who, who knew being boring was such an appealing quality? It's, it, it's turned out to be a great thing. And I think Carla's right. I mean, we, we took a deep breath seeing those press conferences and the sense of normality is just it's terrific. Also, uh, Donald Trump, the ex-president, left a lovely parting gift, which was they lost the state of Georgia in the Senate. And now the, the Democrats have a majority and they, and they can get something done. So that's a huge advantage. And the other thing that someone mentioned the other day, and I, I've really been conscious of it, the Biden campaign made a decision very early that they were not going to engage in all this screaming and yelling. And, and one example was Hunter Biden. And I know the Trump campaign thought they really had an ace in Hunter Biden. And and the Biden campaign looked at it and said, actually, it's a complicated story. People don't really get it. And they're not that concerned about it. We're not even going to push back on that. We're going to just, just going to ignore it. And when he said the other day, I'm tired of talking about Donald Trump. I, don't, I think that's a great strategy. And they are moving on. And I think moving more and more to Donald Trump being virtually irrelevant, virtually irrelevant. And so I think those are all good decisions. Bob's right. We're now starting to see some honest to goodness Capitol Hill, back and forth, and there'll be more because the, the progressives are also, as as we're saying, the progressives are also going to be very engaged in trying to get that. The only other thing I'd say is I was impressed at that town hall when the woman got up and said, student loan needs to be canceled. What are you going to do to make that happen? And he said, I am not going to make that happen. And I, I like that. I mean, he's, he's not old, uh, you know, uncle so-and-so doesn't have any, he had a firm opinion and that's it. Let's get back into the issue of the these these battles now he's going to have both with Republicans and within his own party in terms of getting his people into place. And Carly, you kind of set the table there for us on that. Let, let's talk a bit more about Xavier Becerra. I mean, he's the California Secretary of State. He's nominated to be Homeland Security Secretary. Um, he's yeah, he's the uh, he's the Attorney General in California and nominated for Health and Human yeah. Services. Yeah. <laughs> I like moving them around like the puppet master here. He's, uh, that's actually what Gavin Newsom gets to do these days. Um, but but talk about his uh, his prospects and, and the battle he's facing in uh, the Senate. Was that unexpected? I think it is an un unexpected. Look, I mean, Javier Becerra, you know, he's currently the attorney general. His confirmation hearing is going to take place next Tuesday uh, before the Senate Education, Health, Labor and Pensions Committee. 
And it, you know, it looks like he could face some heat there. There are a number of conservatives up on the area on Capitol Hill who have issues with Becerra because he fronted a hundred lawsuits against the Trump administration as attorney general. And he has played a very critical part in national health care issues. Uh, amazingly, the, the Affordable Care Act, he was a, uh, one of the main defenders of the Affordable Care Act in court. So uh, you've got a bunch of Republicans up there who say he is too partisan. Uh, he lacks health care experience, although other you know, health and human service secretaries have too. Um, and that he has been too heavy handed uh, on the partisan side in California. And they have and people like Mitch McConnell have come out and called him a troubling choice. Uh, John Thune has also said he's on the extreme left. So it, at this point, uh, seeing what happened to Nero Tandon at OMB today, it's possible um, that perhaps Joe Manchin might go that way. And the bottom line is they cannot, the Democrats cannot afford to lose one vote on that one. And that's, uh, I think, uh, you know, Becerra would be the first Latino in that position. So a critical vote and critical to California, I got to say. So I think we're all going to be watching to see what happens next week. It's going to be a real test for Biden, for sure. It will be. Uh, Bob, I mean, oftentimes it's, it's an early test of a president when they have to either defend or cut off uh, one of their nominees, whether they're already in office or not. Um, what do you think we can expect from him? From what I mean, this is a guy who's been in in the, at the heart of top level of Washington politics for decades. Um, so he's not new to the system. Um, what do you? How do you think he's going to uh, deal with uh, getting his agenda in? His well, I, I, I think with both Tandon and Becerra, I, I mean, I can see him making a phone call, say, "Look, guys." These are my people. I want them. You got all your people, when, except for the ones who obviously weren't qualified. I think he would do that. Now, whether it works or not, we don't know. We know the Republicans are just dead set, just like with Obama, on 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 being as much of an obstacle as possible, especially with McConnell. Uh, in, in even as the minority leader, he 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 holds, I think, an outsized amount of power for his position. And I think it's up to Schumer and the Democrats and and Biden to basically say, look, this is what I want and give it to me or else. And this and this is kind of the way of the world, isn't it? As every president puts together a cabinet, the opposition decides that they're going to pick one or two and really go after. Them. I mean, they, they can't go after everybody. Uh, Becerra is an obvious choice because he's got, he's got a lot of uh, background. But I mean, there it's it's I wrote it down here. Uh, that there's this pack that is trying to. Um, put ads up in Washington, D.C. And among the things they're saying is that uh, Becerra supports government-run health care. He sued Catholic nuns. He would decriminalize illegal immigration. And as Carla said, he's not a doctor. And of course, the last guy wasn't a doctor either. But I mean, it's, it's just the demonization uh, of one or two. And, and, that's, and that's what they're going to do. If Biden can get this through, I think it's a, it's a big win. I didn't know you had to have qualifications to get some of these positions. I got. I'm used to not having that. Well, if he if he just if someone had just said very nice things about uh, Joe Biden, he's pretty much in. I think that's the that's the deal, wasn't it? Wasn't that the criteria? The last guy. It, it helps if he invents pillows or something like that. I, that's. I mean, I think I do think the big uh, advantage Becerra has. He's known on Capitol Hill because he was a congressman for so long, and coming from the state uh, of California, I mean, he is a high profile. Uh, Latino elected official uh, who has a, a great deal of respect out here in California. So, so there's going to be a lot of friends uh, that are going to come forward for him. Uh, that is the question. I think is Man- Mansion is the question on that because it, it could come down to to one vote. But what, uh, there's already a lot of people lined up to take uh, Becerra's uh, seat. Should he get that job here in California? We can talk about that later. I think in the program, right? <laughs> well, and, and he's he's no shrinking violet. I mean, I, I think yes. we're gonna yes. we're gonna get him in you know in, in front of Congress, and I think he's gonna defend himself vigorously. He's not gonna fold up and say, "Oh, gee, that hurts my feelings." So, you know, I think it's it's that's kind of how government works. Let's let's see it happen. Yeah, and I think the suits he filed against the administration. I think I don't know that any one of them was actually frivolous. There were serious issues they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, one of our audience members asks, what do you think the actual relationship will be between Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell? Um, of course, they've known each other for a long, long time. But uh, do you think McConnell will work with Biden at all? Or do you think the history is, is past? Uh, it's it's obstruction now. Carla? 
I mean, watching McConnell, uh, you know, on the issue of impeachment, voting no, and then minutes later, uh, slamming Trump to the ground like he did, and then Trump's comeback via statement, calling him a dour, uh, you know, whatever, not, nobody. Uh, McConnell laughed that off. I mean, look, at this point, he's got to just deliver in the final days in his last term. Um, and he's got a very difficult thing to navigate, which is what is the role Donald Trump is going to continue to play up there, um, uh, you know, uh, among Republicans on the Hill? Uh, and and we really don't know that yet. I think we're, we're, we're going to talk about that, too. But that's another aspect of where are these Republicans going to go and how much are they going to give on issues like, you know, COVID testing, vaccinations, COVID relief. Uh, these are issues that matter. What polls show voters are behind Biden on this stuff. I mean, the, the Biden's polls are very, very good right now. Uh, over 50 percent approval. And a lot of folks are are just behind him on this issue of covid relief. Uh, you know, his 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 national polls are somewhere around 55 percent. Our political poll has him at 62 percent. So this is what Donald Trump could only wish for those kind of numbers. So at this point, he, McConnell is probably aware of that. The fact is um, they're going to throw shade at him and throw things in his way as he tries to get some of these uh, these things through Congress. No question. I think I think the, the word that will sum it up probably the relationship between Biden and Mitch McConnell is transactional. If they find things that they can do, and it looks like Biden is going to do some things, God knows we may finally have infrastructure week. You know, after all this time, we've waited for infrastructure. Things that people could get on board with. And, and yeah, Carla's right. COVID is an obvious example. There's not anybody that's, that's voting against COVID, against measures to to, uh, to curb COVID. So there are some things that they can do. And I think that both of those men see that and realize that people would like to see some progress being made in some direction, for heaven's sakes. Don't be so sure there'll be no, so, no, no votes. <laughs> oh, there may be, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I, particularly on the infrastructure, look, California, that is, that is a big deal for California. Pete Buttigieg has said he wants to work out here with, uh, with California folks and some of the labor uh, unions as well. So I think uh, that's one definitely one to watch. It'll be interesting to watch on, on big tech as well. I got to I got to say that that the issue of um, rounding up big tech, at least making them more accountable, is something that seems like both parties are, are calling for at this moment. And you're going to have some of the, the heads, big CEOs, Facebook, Twitter, etc., going to be testifying very soon again on Congress. So uh, look for that to maybe be something that the, the uh, two sides can agree on in some respects. Yeah. Uh, we really have to watch Jeff Zuckerberg testify again. I just, I've had it. I've had enough. Thank you. It's like you're up there once a month. It seems like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can expect that. Nothing the, ever happens. Yeah. Well, I, I think the long knives will be out for uh, the tech folks, especially the social media tech folks, uh, yeah. at least from the Republicans after the, you know, the deplatforming of, of, uh, Trump and then some others, right? right. Um, well, we, we, I mean, we have had some silly controversies already. I mean, there was the uh, the uh, accusation that the Bidens love, uh, you know, their marriage that was all just being done for show, um, and of course the the searing uh, criticism of Jill Biden using doctor as part of her title, um, <laughs> you know. I mean, at this point, at this point, Jill Biden, I, I, I've got to say, I mean, in her first 30, 30 days, I think she's done more than Melania Trump did in the entire term. Well, Melania, you got to give her credit, did uh, fix the tennis uh, uh, pavilion there and the Rose Garden. But in terms of actual initiatives, her Be Best initiative, I think, was was a paper, uh, really nothing more. So you've already seen Joe Biden make some real efforts to get out there and to uh, 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 deal with issues. And I think, on, particularly on education, she's going to be very, a very activist first lady. Uh, you know, going after personally on the Bidens, look, this is where you know, Donald Trump was predicting that in the first 30 days, we'd have socialism or communism and the markets would be collapsing if Joe Biden were elected. And hey, the markets are looking pretty good, I think, right now. And communism, you know, <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. So at this point, uh, you know, considering some of the predictions that Trump made, uh, the Bidens are looking, as, as, as Chuck said, very boring. And that's probably a very good thing. <laughs> 
Melania well, Melania doesn't realize that all she had to do was to wear a scrunchie, and she could have she could have captured the hearts of the entire America. Joe Biden has, has, has seemed to be so authentic, you know, and and go, going in to buy ice cream and coming back. It's just, again, it's a welcome relief. Um, Melania certainly could have been easy. English was not her first language. She was she didn't buy into this. This was not something that she that she asked for. It had to be difficult. But it is still refreshing and nice to see uh, a, down, a pretty down to earth uh, couple and um, may wear off. But for right now, I, I like it. And there's dogs in the White House. Dogs in the White House. <laughs> well, now with the the impeachment trial over, the the focus I think will get even larger on on President Biden. But let's not pass up the impeachment trial just yet. Let's let's actually talk about that a bit more because, in fact, it was just one day after our last week to week that the U.S. Capitol was attacked, and and uh, basically everything we've learned about it since then seems to have shown that it was even worse and more dangerous than uh, was you know, kind of the live reporting was able to uncover. Um, so there was, of course, the second impeachment in the House and then a second uh, impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, which, as we all know, President Trump, our former President Trump, was acquitted. Um, but, Bob, in the course of that Senate trial, let me ask it this way. What did we learn if you th- about the U.S. Senate in this trial? I mean, is is this a functioning body or is it broken or do you think they they dealt with this uh you know like the founding fathers wanted them to no not like the founding fathers wanted them to i mean they think you found what at least 43 senators who knew trump was guilty and decided that well you know what i want to get reelected. so if i vote guilty trump might go on fox and say something bad about me and i'll lose his base they're all trying to get Trump's base, which I don't know whether they can do or not. But, you know, the Republican senators, the Repu- Republican conservatives in general, not all of them, but a great many of them, just seem to be very angry. And I remember a, a quote from uh, from James Baldwin back in the 60s saying, if you're black in America, and relatively conscious, you'll stay in a constant state of rage because you realize what's being done to you. And I think that describes the Republican Party right now. Many of the conservatives, they're they're mad about everything. Trump won. He was mad and whined for four years. A lot of his supporters were mad and whined for four years. There's the sense of outrage that they have over I don't know what. And, you know, on, you know, God rest his soul. Rush Limbaugh is a good one big reason for that. But the Republicans in the Senate and and in the House, you know, they want to get reelected, and they think the only way to do that is to you know pony up to. Trump's base and hope that they can attract them. And I don't know that they'll be able to, especially with that division there with now Trump saying he's going to start another party. And you have the, quote, moderate conservatives like the Romney people. Then you have the Hollies and Can Cruz. I mean, uh, um, what's his first name? Uh, Ted Cruz. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, what I would I would not want to be a Republican right now, especially coming up on 2022. Carla, I mean, what what do you think of the state of, of our politics really coming out of that trial? I mean, I I think it was kind of illustrative too, John, to, to look at some of the roles of Californians in this one. And I mean, uh, and, and when we talk about the state of politics, I mean, take David Valadeo here of California. He's facing a, a, an attempt to censure him at the California Republican Party uh, this weekend for his vote to impeach Donald Trump. He was one of the few who did uh, take that vote, I think, I believe it was 10, um, and facing impeachment. I mean, fa- facing censure from his own party on that. Um, we, we watched, uh, you know, some of the impeachment managers, Ted Lieu and Eric Swalwell, both of California, I think really delivering some incredibly strong arguments. And you had Kevin McCarthy um, on, the, on, on, the, on the back end of that insurrection standing up and saying that the president did have a role and should have taken responsibility. And then days later, twisting himself into a pretzel and saying, well, no, he actually didn't say that. And since in the, in the days since going down and kissing the ring, if you will, at Mar-a-Lago to stay in Trump's good graces. Uh, McCarthy then on the, on the, took the next step and defended uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, and her QAnon sort of uh, uh, um, philosophies, 
and it refused to take her out of her committees. And that was another area where we saw only one California House member stand up to vote to remove her from uh, committees. And that was a young Kim of Orange County. So we're seeing, you know, in the wake of all this, we're seeing how, particularly here in California, Republicans had some wins in the last election cycle, Young Kim being one of them, David Valadeo being one of them. Um, and uh, now the question is, are they going to be the party of Trump? Or, and this, this, this is the story for Republicans all over the country. How much is Donald Trump going to be part of the party? It looked on the, on the eve of that insurrection that so many Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, were saying, that's it, I've had enough. Now it's, as some people have called it, Trumpnesia. They don't want to remember anything about Trump and they just want to move on and sort of uh, are welcoming him even back into the party. That is going to be the question of how successful that move is going to be, considering that in California, Republicans are leaving the party in droves in far bigger numbers than the Democrats are leaving their party. Not just in California. Not just in California, correct. Yeah, there have been reports of thousands of people leaving uh, state party, Republican parties across the country after the insurrection. Charlie, Chuck, excuse me. We, we, we've already mentioned, you know, Senator McConnell voting to acquit the president and then giving this blistering speech, that, you know, saying he incited this. This is that it lies at his feet. Um, what do you make of why McConnell would have done that? Uh, I mean, was he trying to provide cover for his caucus? Was it a personal thing? Was he was he? Uh, trying to preserve some mythical establishment Republican leadership. I mean, your thoughts on on why he did it? Well, I think before the impeachment trial, uh, there were people saying this is going to just draw everything out. It's going to divide the country. I think you might have almost convinced me of that. But as this impeachment went on, I, I think it was an incredibly valuable thing to put all this information in one place. And historians... In the future, when they study Donald Trump, are going to go back to the video of that week and see because it added up. It was a brick by brick by brick, and it meant a lot. And Mitch McConnell could not, at the end of all that, say, "Oh well, he's acquitted, so uh, let's forget it." I think he, every everybody knew that the Republican senators that voted not not to not to impeach did it on procedural grounds. They said. That's the other Mitch McConnell thing, of course, is we can't possibly have the impeachment trial now. It's too soon. And then we have it after he's out of office. Unfortunately, now it's too late. So it's, a, it's the classic Mitch McConnell thing. Uh, but I think that was a, a big moment. And I think it, I think it was incredibly helpful for the, for the country. And I think a lot of these guys, to no one's surprise, are driving by way of the rearview mirror. And they're looking in the back to see, how, how did that play? How's that working out? And I think McConnell laid down his, I mean, Claire McCaskill said that was a lock him up speech. Why don't you, why don't you get, why don't you get in the legal system and, and try to hold him accountable? So that was pretty impressive. He didn't have the votes to impeach him and to, for him to vote to impeach would have made him look weak. Uh, so I think he probably played it down the middle as best he could, but I still think Donald Trump came out of that very weakened in, in my humble opinion. So why are we still talking about it? Well, that's a good question. This, this is this theory that I have not been able to convince my wife of. I, I think we're confusing the Donald Trump before January 6th with the Donald Trump today. That day scared a lot of people, a lot of people. And it, it scared people on the right. It scared Republicans. I mean, that's the first time you really did think he is trying to take over the country. He's actually trying to take over the country. And I think the call to go to state houses the next few days and nobody showed up. The fact that people aren't talking about him that much. He lost the popular vote in 2016. He lost it bigger in 2020. And even the stuff we're talking about, Carla, uh, you know, Liz, Liz Cheney comes out and, and, and takes him on. Oh, boy. So we send Matt Gates out to do, a, 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 I guess, a pep rally in Wyoming. But then when it comes to a vote for, to, to strip her of her leadership role, she wins two to one. She wins easily. And Margie Taylor Green, I know we said, you know, she's getting oxygen from Trump, but she was taken off her, her committees. I think the tide's going the wrong way for Donald Trump. He's kind of turning into the pillow guy. You know, he's... I, 
I got to say, I'm not so sure. When you have Kevin McCarthy um, basically also twisting himself into a pretzel, uh, at one point criticizing Trump, and now clearly you know, laying out the red carpet again for him. Lindsey Graham, again, laying out the red carpet, saying this is the guy who represents the Republican Party. Uh, you know, as I said, the Republican Party in California is meeting this weekend. A lot of those folks are still with Trump. When you ask their candidates about Trump, they do not want to criticize him in any way, shape or form. I mean, they just won't go there. So right. uh, I think that fear, what you saw when, when Trump came out with that, uh, that incredible uh, uh, statement about Mitch McConnell, just ripping him. This is the guy who got his Supreme Court nominees, including Amy Coney Barrett, you know, fast tracked them. They wouldn't be there without Mitch McConnell. Uh, and yet uh, Trump, you know, basically ripped him up. Right. Um, they're afraid of him still. And that just shows me. And I think McCarthy's um, effort to go to Mar-a-Lago and to pose with Trump, he wants to be Speaker of the House. There's no question about that. He thinks that is his path. And if that's the case, we know that among you know, perhaps 80 percent of Republicans, the polls show, still believe Trump is is a leader of the party. And more than half of them think if he runs again in 2024, they will vote for him, that he's a leading candidate for president. So I'm not so sure you can dismiss him well, uh, without his twi- without his Twitter platform. I agree. He's, well, it seems right. like he's out of out of the loop, but I I I'm not so sure that's the case. As I as I said, I haven't even been able to convince my wife of this yet, so it's, it's one of those problems. But uh, the, the Twitter thing was huge. The fact that the fact that he lost that, and I'd say he did a vintage rip of, of McConnell. It was personal. It was mean. It was, and that thing went away like that. It was there and it was gone. Yeah, and McConnell laughed it off. You're, you're and McConnell right. laughed it off, and he and he didn't back he didn't back off, and he didn't say, you know, I said some intemperate things. I probably should have done. How about Nikki Haley, who comes out and and, say, and then tries to go down to Mar-a-Lago, and then Trump won't do it. But the thing I thought was significant, and this is kind of where I'm where I'm basing it, is when he when Trump got on on Fox about Rush Limbaugh, he started in again about how I won the election. And that's what I mean. He's turning into the pillow guy because the pillow guy went on whatever that news station was. And they said, we're not talking about the voting machines. He said, oh, no, we have to. And, and Trump is turning into that guy. When you see the, his phone number come up, you go, oh, man, he's just going to go on and on about the election again. And that's over. You know, I, I think he's I think he's marginalizing himself. I mean, wishful thinking, Pollyanna. But I think he is he is putting himself out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, by the way, the figure I just called the figure: more than thirty-three thousand registered voters have left the Republican Party since January sixth. So, yeah, it's a, there's a cost to being with Trump. There's no question. He's still popular with a lot of those grassroots folks. That I know for sure. One, one other quick, one, one quick thing, and I'm done. The, sorry, the, the the question I always have is, what is Trumpism? I mean, it's a personality cult, but what, what do we accomplish? Lowered taxes for the rich and got those judges in. Other than that, it's not like an overriding philosophical argument for this is how the party moves forward. It's Donald Trump doing those rallies and insulting people. Someone uh, on an earlier week-to-week uh, mentioned, this is early in, in Trump's term, um, that Trump doesn't have political followers. He has fans. And so they're judging him on and expecting him are expecting from him different things than someone who's looking at Chuck Schumer or, or uh, Claire McCaskill or something else. Um, Bob, I, I spoke over you. Do you have something to add? I was just going to say that we talk a lot about McConnell and, and McCarthy and, and all that they're trying to do and Republicans wanting to get reelected. Talk to me after the midterms. If, if the Republicans are able to come back and take the house, then, We'll have to talk about Trump some more. But I suspect that the 82 million that voted for Joe Biden will come out again for the midterms um, and that the Democrats have a chance to further solidify the House and maybe pick up seats in the Senate. If that happens, we might finally be able to get rid of talking about the former president. Good point. Carla, do you think the 2022 elections are going to 
Well, you know, historically, we know what is it? The um, the party in control of the White House usually loses uh, more than 20 seats in the House. That would make Kevin McCarthy the next speaker. He sees that there. He wants that job badly. Uh, so the, the Democrats have got to hope that they can fire up people as much as they did in the presidential election. And, and we know that's historically that, that doesn't happen historically. So they're going to have to work very, very hard on it. But right now, as you said, the polls are in Joe Biden's favor. I think people like the fact that, yes, COVID is being addressed. Um, you're going to see those numbers come down. You're going to see the vaccinations go up. You're going to see the economy rebound. And all of that works in, in Joe Biden's favor if that's what happens. The schools have got to reopen. And that's at the national level and at the state level for the Democrats. If they don't get that done, then they could be in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we've been talking about uh, intra-party um, uh, controversy within the Republican Party, but of course the Democrats um, are no uh, <laughs> no stranger to uh, to infighting. Um, and there, of course, remains this progressive centrist Democratic split. I want to get into both some local top aspects of that in a moment, but first let's talk about on the national level you're you're not seeing huge rifts on the national level, though we are seeing, as we saw, or, you know, or we mentioned already, uh, Senator Manchin. Um, you know, he's he's not doing what what the president wants. But um, maybe your your take and start with you, Bob. That Biden at least has a bit of a of a, a free hand for a, a while to kind of try to push his agenda through, and maybe the the interparty con- controversies can come later. Or do you think otherwise? Well, I think, you know, the the, the far left of the party, uh, the Sanders, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, um, they want what they want. And they say, we help put you in office and we deserve this. But I think Biden has basically said, and he said this during the campaign, some of the things that you want, I don't think are good for the country. I'm not going to go down that road. So I think there'll be a fight um, w- within the Democratic Party for these things, like the $50,000 student debt. Um Medicare for all eventually, you know, even though everybody is saying it would be a good thing for the country, especially with, during a pandemic, I think we will see some some movement on that. Um, if nothing else, if they can, now that they have taken off, taken the, the Department of Justice out of the, the suit against uh, the ACA, I think we may see some improvements there. If you see improvements in the, in the ACA, even people in red states who got their insurance through the ACA are going to have to slip and say, huh, you know what? I don't have to worry about my, my insurance anymore. Now I know it's gonna, I'm going to have it at least for the next four years. I think that's going to be a big thing. But, yeah, there'll be, there'll, be, there'll be battles. But there always have been battles between, you know, the far left, the middle left, the right left. It's, just, it's always been – it's just politics. Carly, your thought, Democrats, national level? Yeah, I mean, you know, as Bob said, I think uh, school um, tuition is a very big thing for progressives like Rob Connor here in, in the Silicon Valley. He's made an issue of that. Uh, the, the ACA, uh, other issues, and the amount of COVID relief. But, but you're right. I think Democrats want to protect Biden, at least help him along. Some of the more um, vocal ones like uh, AOC have been have been sort of, uh, you know, keeping, keeping a lid on it for now and, and and trying to assist him getting through particularly the cabinet nominees that he wants and, uh, you know, moving on some of the big initiatives. So, yeah, I, I, I think right now he doesn't have to worry about that, but it's coming for sure. Chuck, national thoughts. Well, I, I thought one of the interesting things, um, we get this COVID relief bill and one of the things that was included was a minimum wage of $15. And, and the minute it came out, um, the pundits were saying, well, you know, you add some of these things into the bill and then later on they go away. Maybe you make some concessions as time goes on and maybe that brings along some Republicans and maybe it does get you some unity and bipartisan support. But Bernie Sanders is not having it. I mean, and that's an example, I think, of what you're talking about is the minimum wage is good to be part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And I think there are going to be battles like that down the road, climate for sure, Schools is enormous. Carla's right about schools, but it's coming. It's still going to happen. But it's, yeah, the sense that this Biden team has done this before. They're not going to have their feelings hurt. They're going to try to work through it. And I, I think that uh, it's it's certainly a less chaotic process. 
Let's talk then about Democrats on the local level and, and zero right in here on, on the home base for some of us, San Francisco. So, you know, I mean, for decades, right, San Francisco, San Francisco values, that sort of stuff has been used as a, a right-wing punching bag, usually for exaggerated claims that it was run by the loony left. Now even some non-conservatives are saying the city actually is run by the loony left, and they point to the city's school renaming scandal as well as crime and small business problems. Chuck, <laughs> what's your take on this? Do, do the, does the Democratic Party have a San Francisco problem? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I think it's it's. Um, I mean, the talk at City Hall is what is the school board doing here? I mean, it it's not just that the New York Post went apoplectic because they took the name of Lincoln off one of the schools or that the New Yorker did this embarrassing uh, interview with the, with the head of the school board and, and everybody looks stupid, but it's the fact that they're concentrating on renaming the schools in the middle of a time when people are crying to get these schools back, back open. And the, the sense of focus, it's, it's, uh, it's probably goes back to Gavin Newsom and the fresh laundry. It's, it's too easy to draw the conclusion, and then you find out that a lot of the a lot of the research that was done on these on these renaming the schools was wrong. They they were they were going to ban the, the Sanchez name, and they found out they had the wrong Sanchez. They wanted they wanted to get rid of Paul Revere. Oops! It turns out he wasn't involved in that after all. And the minute you ban Abraham Lincoln, I mean, you're just asking for somebody to to throw a pie in your face. It's <laughs> it's inconceivable. It's hard to believe. And I think. I think there is a sense, city hall, citywide, of kind of, come on, we can do better than this. It's like San Francisco. It's like San Francisco is the new Berkeley. Remember all the times we talked about Berkeley and how how wacky Berkeley was for the things that they would do. Well, San Francisco is doing that. I mean, renaming the schools. If you want to rename some schools, I guess as a school board you can. But the reason you're renaming it is because this guy had slaves. Or 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 Father Sarah, um, you know, talk to the, the the Native Americans. I mean, you know, come on, give me a better a better reason. I mean, on the on the on the thing of slaves, slavery is a part of this country. It was it was an accepted part of this country for a, a for centuries, um, and so I don't have a problem with a George Washington or 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 you know somebody who had slaves or had servants. Where I draw the line is if you fought this country to maintain slavery, you don't deserve your name on anything. But, you know, come on. It's, it, to me, it's, it's ludicrous to say people that were doing what everybody in this country did, even as, as, a, as a, abhorrent as it was, they shouldn't have, they should not be honored. I, I just don't get that. And, and the other thing is, uh, John, it, I mean, the San Francisco School Board essentially has become a poster child for this, you know, woke culture, cancel culture, handing ammunition every day of the week to, to the Fox News, to Newsmax, to these conservative sites. I mean, I mean, at one point they spent two hours debating whether a white gay male parent was diverse enough to join their advisory council. I mean, come on. In the middle of a pandemic, this is this is nothing short of insanity. And um, as somebody said, uh, Brian Brokaw told us, I mean, it, it, San Francisco has become a parody of itself in, in this respect. This is particularly problematic, I think, uh, for Democrats, because it comes as Gavin Newsom is facing a recall. And this this is just fired up all those conservative uh, critics and and just added ammunition and fire um, fuel to their fire. Every everything that the San Francisco School Board is doing. So uh, it's it's just one other example of of how yes, San Francisco values. That's what Newt Gingrich uh, talked about back in the 1990s, and we're back to that again with the San Francisco School Board. I want to get into the the recall a little bit later as a, as a separate section, but I, I do want to ask and and get each of your thoughts on this. Have we reached kind of peak woke? As far as the political control of the board of supervisors, the board of the school board. In other words, is the next election for any of those those seats likely to see a resurgence of the so-called centrist Democrats or the moderate Democrats in the city? You know, one of the one of the ironies of, of San Francisco is, is as woke as San Francisco is, year after year, we elect a moderate mayor. 
I would say the only progressive mayor in recent history was Art Agnos, and he was a one-term mayor. There's a there's a very moderate core in San Francisco, and not to mix the metaphor, but they need to wake up if they're gonna if they're gonna try to to take this uh, take this seriously. But the purity test thing, I think, gets to people. You're good, but you're not quite pure enough. You know, you're not, and it goes back to even in the in the presidential campaign, defund the police. That was a bad slogan. That was a bad idea. And now they've been hit over the head with it over and over and over. And it, it, it is that tendency of the progressives to take it too far. And if you don't like it, you're just wrong. That's all there is to it. I mean, it also underscores how elections, down ballot elections, are oftentimes ignored by voters. And sometimes those are the ones that have most impact on your life. I mean, remember, let's remember in San Francisco, too, a declining number of parents even send their kids to public schools. So many people just write off those elections or don't pay no attention to them. And there's a big cost to doing that. That is that is the problem. I mean, I'm thinking in in this recall year, you may see recall fire when it comes to the San Francisco school board. Um, there's been enough editorials, et cetera, uh, you know, pointing them out. But the fact is, in a pandemic year, voters don't have time and energy a lot of times to deal with uh, the elections that affect them most. The city's uh, district attorney, uh, Chase Bodine, is also a darling of the left. Uh, could he face a, a recall, do you think? I mean, I think I, I think we're starting to hear this recall word being used in a lot of different venues um, around the state. And I think Republicans have found a way to a, a, a formula sort of of getting out uh, their voters they've they've pinpointed them very very exactly in the in the in the uh, Newsom case in terms of getting out petitions and we we see in California the bar isn't that high for recall elections so yeah i, I think uh, Boudin is a, definitely a controversial figure he's made some very controversial moves and i wouldn't be surprised if that happened Getting getting a recall across the line, however, is, is a different story. I think one of the problems with him is he is now an established sort of a meme. You know, he's the he's the guy that lets everybody out. Now he gets blamed for everything, whether whether he had anything to do with it or not. And part of that was he didn't handle it well in the first in the start. He he could have done a better job of PR for himself. But now he's he's the guy that he's the guy that's ruining San Francisco. And I I'm sure he's an honorable guy. I, I doubt that that's that's the case, but. Again, back to you, John. Polarized and, and and the and the woke culture, and this we end up with two sides yelling at each other. Bob, I mean, you're you're not in San Francisco. Is this a is San Francisco an outlier in in this kind of current resurgence of of the the progressives, or is it a do you see it in other cities and communities in the Bay Area? Well, I think the progressive left, if you want to use that term has become more and more uh, prominent. And the problem there, as I see it, we have a member of a school board here in Antioch who just got elected and it's there's no filter. It's whatever you think you wanna say, you're gonna say. Um, and no matter who it, who, who it upsets. And I long for the days when you know, your, 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 your words were measured um, and they had meaning. And I think we're all part of this, this culture uh, that was created back in 2016, that no matter what, say what you want to say, no, no matter the consequences. If you don't like it, that's too, that's too bad. And, and you see where we are. Now we have, you know, people who are in office who probably um, wouldn't be in office if it were not for that culture. So I think it's a problem. I mean, he, you know, we, we have a situation here with the school board that we that we talked about. The, um, it's been on the news the last couple of days where a school board meeting where the school board members thought they were talking to themselves and, oh, the public was listening in. And they were disparaging parents. And now there's a recall effort that last time I checked had 5,000. It's not a recall effort. It's, an, it's a petition for those school board members to resign. And it has 5,000 signatures. And it just started uh, Wednesday night, during the, I think right after the meeting was over. So one of the school board members has already resigned. Wow. And there's two more that are on the chopping, but they already had one vacancy. If those two resign, there'll be one school board member in that city of Oakley. Well, that, that gets into the, the the controversies, really. We're seeing here, we're seeing in Chicago, we're seeing in a number of places across the country of school openings 
and this is a political, I don't know, it's not really a hot potato because they're stuck with it. They can't throw it. Uh, but for governors and mayors uh, in many places, and often pitting them against teachers unions who, who are trying to, you know, slow, go slowly on, on school reopenings. So let's talk a bit about the politics of school reopening. And, and uh, Chuck, I mean, from what you're seeing, are, are do you, is one side smarter than the other? Or is this one of those things where both sides have are right in what they're trying to do, but they... I think we'd all welcome it if it was two sides. I mean, the thing with the school opening is it's going in every possible direction all over the country. There are schools open. There are schools that aren't going to open. Um, you mentioned Chicago. And one of the frustrations I had with the San Francisco school board is Chicago has a very active teachers union. And they're a feisty bunch. They're not They're not a, a bunch of milk toasts. And they got together with the city. Uh, they worked it through. Uh, you know, the, the, some, the demands just keep getting higher and higher and higher. They worked it through. They found out a workable way to get elementary schools open, and they opened them the following Thursday. San Francisco says it has this plan to open schools, and they're hoping maybe they can do it by April, but it might be May. And if it's that late, maybe we just won't have a school year. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of frustration that I think people are facing. Teachers have this enormous reservoir of goodwill, as they should. It's a very difficult job. It's such an important job. But they are now reaching the point where they, they are beginning to look obstinate and, and, and unfeeling. And science is showing over and over and over, you, with precautions, it is not that difficult to, to get schools open with, with the right precautions. And I just have one more thing, and that would be, I wrote that in my little newsletter, and uh, I got a lot of reaction, but one of the teachers said, look, I get what you're saying. I'd like to go back. I can't trust my school district to keep me safe. That's my concern. And, and I think they have to get buy-in for that. But they are saying, you know, every teacher does not have to have a vaccination before they go back. We need to wear a mask. Absolutely. We need to practice social distancing. But if you do that, the dangers are not that great. With, and we have a pretty large sample to show it. I mean, here, here's the issue, John. I think this is the singular issue that, that Gavin Newsom's uh, political career is going to rise and fall on. I mean, there's 6 million uh, public point. school kids in this state. Uh, Gavin Newsom said that the school's reopening, his target originally was February. That's, that's come and gone, it looks like. That hasn't happened. Uh, and so we saw the legislature... Uh, this week, come out with another proposal. Um, Newsom says it doesn't go far enough. He's under fire from the teachers' unions. They've come out with a uh, an ad, basically that uh, you know, basically stressing the need for pre pre safety precautions. But as Chuck says, a lot of parents are saying, "Look, come on, what's going on?" And, he, and Newsom, it looks to me, in his press conference today, seems to be losing patience with the teachers and saying. We got to do something that what the legislature is trying to do here doesn't go far enough, doesn't go fast enough. We need to move faster. They know that parents are at their wits end at this point. They need to get those kids back in the school. This is having a huge effect. And I think at this point, the teachers union, um, as Chuck said, is beginning to look like they're obstinate and not giving in here. So what we saw uh, this week was Newsom saying, okay, look, 10% uh, of the vaccinations are going to go to teachers. We're going to make sure these teachers get vaccinated. There's not going to be any excuse here. And that has to be done um, because this is this is really do or die for Newsom. That's the singular biggest issue that the Republicans are hitting him on. And if that isn't done by the time this recall election, which looks like it's going to happen, comes around, um, he, he could be in trouble. Well, let's dive into the topic of the recall election. It's not the first attempt to recall, recall California Governor Gavin Newsom, but this is an ongoing attempt that has outshone all of the other attempts, um, and it has picked up speeds from people who, from you know, support from people who are upset about the closing of of uh, religious kind of, uh, worship uh, uh, gatherings and and as well as businesses and and schools. Um, and Carla, let's just stick with you because you, you've been writing about this. Uh, what do we know about this recall effort? How strong is it? What what uh, is the current status of it? Well, this is the sixth attempt on on Gavin Newsom, but this one stuck because of the pandemic. Um, the the proponents were given a 
a very long um, um, chance to to um, uh, keep push up their deadline to to come up with 1.5 million valid signatures till March. They originally were supposed to have them in November, and that gave them the lifeline they needed. In the meantime, the pandemic hit, and Newsom is now looking like he's fa- going to face this recall election. We're going to know in, in April, uh, but the uh, proponents tell me they already have 1.5 million signatures, and we're going to see how many of them are valid. Uh, it is now getting big money from the Republican Party nationwide. It's getting national Republican support like Governor Mike Huckabee and Newt Gingrich, big names like that. There were Bloomberg had a report this week that Donald Trump might get into this one. And uh, with his support or do rallies, we haven't heard any kind of confirmation on that yet. But the bottom line is the Republican Party nationally sees this as a big story, sees this as an effort now that Trump is gone from Twitter and, you know, there's nobody to sort of pump up the grassroots, especially here in California. Gavin Newsom is the guy who has the target on his back. And it's it's about getting those schools back, getting those businesses back, getting those vaccinations into the arms of, peop- of people here in California. Those are the three big issues. He's out there now. You can see him doing campaign events almost every day uh, this week with a a parade of officials behind him almost every day talking about those vaccinations and schools and opening, for instance, school sports as he did this week. Uh, So he is he is sort of responding to it, but he refuses to sort of acknowledge that this recall is even happening at this point. Uh, but the bottom line is, I mean, as of next month, we're going to know. And it's very, very likely that when it comes to October or November of this year, Californians are going to see a recall election. And I can tell you, John, it's going to be crazyville here in California. You are likely to see perhaps hundreds of candidates on that recall ballot because the bar is so low to get on it. 60 to 100 signatures and $4,000. That's the same as it was in the recall of 2003 when there didn't exist a Facebook or a Twitter. So Chuck, your little dog there can probably raise that on GoFundMe right now. I mean, there's going to be that many candidates. I think it's going to be um, for an expensive and very divisive uh, contest. And Newsom is right in the center of it. Well, I think he does have one thing going in his favor. The recall election, if it is held, will be in October. So it gives them time to get the schools open. And I, I saw a cartoon um, on Valentine's Day, and it was like, you know, two kids, the parents are, are t- uh, tapping their, sa- their champagne glasses, and the kids are saying, I guess they're having champagne because, you know, it's Valentine's Day. And then you see the headline of the school news, of the newspaper, CDC says, CDC says schools can open. You know, <laughs> I, de- I deliver groceries to, to moms with small kids who are homeschooling who were doing the distance learning thing. And, you know, one time, um, at one point during my Costco run, there were these things called uh, uh, adult Otter Pops, you know, these like, um, these alcohol things. And like, somebody asked me to get some, somebody commented and said, oh, no, you're just taking advantage of that. This is not a necessity. One of the other mothers said, it depends how many kids you have at home, homeschool. And that is the point. These parents are, they are so fed up with this. And the reason people got so upset uh, with Oakley on Wednesday is because they're tuning in to find out when are the schools going to open? When can I send my kids back to school? When can things get even back to some kind of normal? And what they heard it said was the school board members, you know, discouraging the parents. But everybody, people even, because they know what I do for a living, people started writing me on, on Messenger saying, can you help us here? And my kids are in special education. It's only five kids, but they canceled the classes. We need help. I mean, it, it, it's getting really, really, really bad. I think that uh, Carla makes a really good point about the, the recall, why this one has taken off. I mean, I, I think there's like three points to make. One of them is because of the money. I mean, the dirty little secret about collecting petitions and collecting signatures is, you hire people to do that. They've got millions to do that. And they're at 1.5 million signatures now. They're going for 2 million. Looks like they're going to make it. They're, they're, going to, they're going to get to the bar. They're going to pass it. There probably will be a recall. Second, I think Newsom would love it if Donald Trump would get involved. That would be excellent. If he came out here, that would be exactly what he'd like to have someone to run against. This is what we're talking about here. And third, I think the, the previous recall, when Gray Davis was recalled, the key point was, Arnold Schwarzenegger came up as a great, big, looming presence that everybody knew. 
who is that person for this for this recall? And it's not Falconer, it's not Cox. It, right now, it's Newsom, and, and as Carla said, it could be 200 candidates. It could be all kinds of people. And then I do have kind of another wackadoodle theory that I'd like to throw out, which was in 1983, Diane Feinstein faced a recall. And uh, it was kind of unexpected. She was the mayor of San Francisco. She'd just gotten the job because of the, the shootings. It was a recall effort. She won it by 80%. It was, it was a mistake to do it, but it was a mistake to make the recall. But what it did was it reinforced how popular Diane Feinstein was, and it wiped the, cl the slate clean of opponents because they said, what's the point? We've already had an election. She already won 80%. Newsom isn't going to win 80%. But if he has a convincing victory in this recall, it might actually give him a boost. That's a good point. I, I remember in my home state of Wisconsin when Governor Scott Walker faced a recall, and recalls are pretty rare there, I believe, but um, the, the Democrats were very energized about this and there was a lot of energy around it, a lot of, you know, public protests and marches and all this kind of stuff. And he won it and then went on to win an actual re-election very handily because he, you know, he, he got elected essentially three times as, as governor. Um, so, John Cox, Kevin Falconer, they don't uh, impress you? Does anyone think they might be strong? I, I, I just want to say that in your home state of Wisconsin, here's the difference. Uh, it, it takes twice as many signatures and you get half as much time uh, to, to put a recall on the ballot. Here in California, uh, they got a lot, they get a lot more time. And as we said, uh, in, in Wisconsin, you vote whether you want Scott Walker or not. That's the recall vote. Here you get two votes. First, the first vote that people will decide on is, do you support the recall of Gavin Newsom, yes or no? And then uh, which of these candidates do you want? And that's where sort of the the uh, political intrigue might come through, because will, will any Democrats get on that ballot? Um, we've already seen, you mentioned Kevin Falconer, who was here in San Francisco this week, campaigning in front of Abraham Lincoln High School, using that whole issue um, to, to say, look, California needs a comeback. He's even got a campaign, he's got a campaign going and a very sort of organized one going. And he's got big donors behind him. John Cox has already put $2 million into it of his own money and expect a bunch of other Republicans to get into this too. They see this as their opportunity to elect a Republican governor because in a regular election, remember Newsom is up for election in 2022, just one year later. Uh, Republicans would have a very hard time getting any candidate on the ballot under our top two primary system. So that's why they're seeing this as, a, as an opportunity. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the nation is going to be watching this as sort of the biggest political story of the year. So a lot of money is going to pour in. And I think you can expect The Rock or Kanye West or some, you know, big name, Kim Kardashian. She's getting a divorce this week. Maybe she's going to, you know, yeah, I think you just don't know. That is such a low bar, $4,000. I, I, I can just tell you a number of people will get on it just to say they ran for governor. That, that's how crazy it's going to be here in California. I think it'd be a win-win for Republicans. Even if they don't win, they muddy Gavin Newsom up. And he was seen as an up and coming guy. Maybe they tarnish his image a little. Okay, well, final question before we end the program then is how do you think this will work out? Do you think Gavin Newsom will be governor in January of 2022? Bob? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, it, the same people who I think were upset about what happened with the Oakley School Board, these are the same people that voted for Donald Trump. So a lot of these are the same people that voted for Donald Trump. Um, there aren't enough of them in California to win to win uh, the gubernatorial election. So we'll just have to see. Plus, with all of them leaving the party, they, they're leaving the Republican Party, but they're going to vote to recall Gavin Newsom. They might, but I I think the, the Democratic independent voters in California will speak. I think, you know, Bob is right. Gavin Newsom has a huge advantage in that the Democratic Party has 20 point advantage here in California, at least over the Republican Party. The question is, uh, can you get those voters to come out in a recall election when the more motivated voters might be the angry voters? What we do know is that Gavin Newsom will get help from Democrats all over the country on this, it probably including Kamala Harris, vice president and Joe Biden. 
He is a he is a, a star in the party. There's no doubt about it, and that is why that target's on his back. So I think um, you know Democrats are already saying this isn't just about Gavin Newsom. It's about the Democratic agenda in California, including gun control uh, and other issues, health care, Affordable Care Act, all those other things. That's what the Democrats will make in California, which tells me Gavin Newsom could pull it out, but a lot. A lot depends on the condition of California and how it's recovering from COVID, including the schools, by the time voters go to the polls. Okay, Chuck, you get the final word. What, what's your prediction? I think he'll still be governor. I'd, I'd like to steal some of Bob's ideas and pretend they're mine. Um, <laughs> the advantage he has is that it's October, and we know COVID is getting better now. We know that's happening. It's going to get even better. If that happens, schools, schools will also follow along. And many of the things that Carl is talking about is true. People are mad at those issues and they're blaming Gavin Newsom. If those issues get better, they'll have to find something else to blame Gavin Newsom for. And he may look like, he, you know, the rising tide raises all boats. He may look like the guy who helped all this happen. And I think that'll be a, a positive. Very good. Well, thank you to our great panel today, Carlo Marinucci, Bob Butler, and CW Nevius. Thanks to all of you for watching and listening online. Stay safe and healthy and have a good week and we'll see you again in the future. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.